Part 2, Chapter 9, Section 100A of The Life of Jesus Critically Examined by David Friedrich Strauss, translated by George Eliot. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part 2, History of the Public Life of Jesus. Chapter 9, Miracles of Jesus. Section 100, Resuscitations of the Dead. The evangelists tell us of three instances in which Jesus recalled the dead to life. One of these is common to the three synoptists, one belongs solely to Luke, and one to John. The instance which is common to the three first evangelists is the resuscitation of a girl, and is in all the three gospels united with the narrative of the woman who had an issue of blood. Matthew chapter 9 verse 18 and following verses 23 through 26 mark chapter 5 verse 22 and following luke chapter 8 verse 41 and following in the more precise designation of the girl and her father the synoptical writers vary matthew introduces the father generally as a certain ruler without any name the two others as a ruler of the synagogue named jairus the latter, moreover, describe the girl as being twelve years old, and Luke states that she was the only child of her father, particulars of which Matthew is ignorant. A more important difference is that, according to Matthew, the ruler, in the first instance, speaks of his daughter to Jesus as being dead, and entreats him to restore her to life, whereas, according to the two other evangelists, he left her while yet living, though on the point of death, that he might fetch Jesus to avert her actual decease. And first, when Jesus was on the way with him, people came out of his house with the information that his daughter had in the meantime expired, so that to trouble Jesus further was in vain. The circumstances of the resuscitation also are differently described. For Matthew knows not that Jesus, as the other evangelists state, took with him only his three most confidential disciples as witnesses. Some theologians, Storr, for example, have thought these divergencies so important that they have supposed two different cases in which, among other similar circumstances, the daughter, in one case of a civil ruler, Matthew, in the other, of a ruler of the synagogue named Jairus, Mark and Luke, was raised from the dead by Jesus. But that, as Storr supposes, and as it is inevitable to suppose on this view, Jesus not only twice resuscitated a girl, but also on both these occasions healed a woman with an issue immediately before is a coincidence which does not at all gain in probability by the vague observation of Storr, that it is quite possible for very similar things to happen at different times. If, then, it must be admitted that the evangelists narrate only one event, the weak attempt to give perfect agreement to their narratives should be forborne. For neither can the expression of Matthew, arti et al iutisa, mean, as Quinal maintains, est morti proxima, nor can that of Mark, escatos ecce, or of Luke, ab ethniska, imply that death had already taken place. Not to mention that, according to both, the fact of the death is subsequently announced to the father as something new. Our more modern critics have wisely admitted a divergency between the accounts, in doing which they have unanimously given the palm of superior accuracy to the intermediate evangelists. Some are lenient towards Matthew, and only attribute to his mode of narration a brevity which might belong even to the representation of an eyewitness, while others regard this want of particularity as an indication that the first gospel had not an apostolic origin. Now that Mark and Luke give the name of the applicant, on which Matthew is silent, and also that they determine his rank more precisely than the latter, 
will just as well bear an unfavorable construction for them as the usual favorable one since the designation of persons by name as we have before remarked is not seldom an addition of the later legend for example the woman with the issue first receives the name of veronica in the tradition of john malala the canaanitish woman that of justa in the clementine homilies and the two thieves crucified with jesus the names of gestas and demas in the gospel of nicodemus luke's one only daughter only serves to make the scene more touching and the twelve years of age he and after him mark might have borrowed from the history of the woman with the issue the divergency that according to matthew the maiden is spoken of in the first instance as dead according to the two others as only dying must have been considered very superficially by those who have thought it possible to turn it in accordance with our own rule to the disadvantage of matthew on the ground that his representation serves to aggrandize the miracle for in both the other gospels the death of the girl is subsequently announced and its being supposed in matthew to have occurred a few moments earlier is no aggrandizement of the miracle nay it is the reverse for the miraculous power of jesus appears greater in the former not indeed objectively but subjectively because it is heightened by contrast and surprise there where jesus is in the first instance entreated to restore the dead to life he does no more than what was desired of him here on the contrary where supplicated only for the cure of a sick person he actually brings that person to life again he does more than the interested parties seek or understand there where the power of awakening the dead is presupposed by the father to belong to jesus the extraordinary nature of such a power is less marked than here where the father at first only presupposes the power of healing the sick and when death has supervened is diverted from any further hope in the description of the arrival and the conduct of jesus in the house where the corpse lay matthew's brevity is at least clearer than the diffuse accounts of the two other evangelists matthew tells us that jesus having reached the house put forth the minstrels already assembled for the funeral together with the rest of the crowd on the ground that there would be no funeral there this is perfectly intelligible but mark and luke tell us besides that he excluded his disciples also with the exception of three from the scene about to take place and for this it is difficult to discover a reason that a greater number of spectators would have been physically or psychologically an impediment to the resuscitation can only be said on the supposition that the event was a natural one admitting the miracle the reason for the exclusion can only be sought in the want of fitness in the excluded parties whom however the sight of such a miracle would surely have been the very means to benefit but we must not omit to observe that the two latter synoptists in opposition to the concluding statement of matthew that the fame of this event went abroad in the whole land represents jesus as enjoining the strictest silence on the witnesses so that on the whole it rather appears that mark and luke regarded the incident as a mystery to which only the nearest relatives and the most favored disciples were admitted lastly the difference on which schultz insists as favorable to the second and third evangelists namely that while matthew makes jesus simply take the maiden by the hand they have preserved to us the words which he at the same time uttered the former even in the original language can either have no weight at all or it must fall into the opposite scale for that jesus if he said anything when recalling a girl to life 
made use of some such words as maiden i say unto thee arise the most remote narrator might imagine and to regard the talitha kumi of mark as an indication that this evangelist drew from a peculiarly original source is to forget the more simple supposition that he translated these words from the greek of his informant for the sake of presenting the life-giving word in its original foreign garb and thus enhancing its mysteriousness as we have before observed with reference to the ephatha in the cure of the deaf man after what we have seen we shall willingly abstain from finding out whether the individual who originally furnished the narrative in luke were one of the three confidential disciples and whether the one who originally related it also put it into writing a task to which only the acumen of schleiermacher is equal in relation to the facts of the case the natural interpretation speaks with more than its usual confidence under the persuasion that it has on its side the assurance of jesus himself that the maiden was not really dead but merely in a sleep-like swoon and not only the rationalists like paulus and semi-rationalists like schleiermacher but also decided supernaturalists like olhausen believe on the strength of that declaration of jesus that this was no resuscitation of the dead the last-named commentator attaches especial importance to the antithesis in the speech of jesus and because the words is not dead are followed by but sleepeth is of opinion that the former expression cannot be interpreted to mean merely she is not dead since i have resolved to restore her to life strange criticism for it is precisely this addition which shows that she was only not dead in so far as it was in the power of jesus to recall her to life reference is also made to the declaration of jesus concerning lazarus john chapter eleven verse fourteen lazarus is dead which is directly the reverse of the passage in question the damsel is not dead but jesus had before said of lazarus this sickness is not unto death verse four and our friend lazarus sleepeth verse eleven thus in the case of lazarus also who was really dead we have just as direct a denial of death and affirmation of mere sleep as in the narrative before us hence fritzsche is undoubtedly right when he paraphrases the words of jesus in our passage as follows puellem ne pro mortua habetote sed dormire existimatote quipe in vitam mox redituram moreover matthew subsequently chapter eleven verse five makes jesus say the dead are raised up and as he mentions no other instance of resuscitation by jesus he must apparently have had this in mind but apart from the false interpretation of the words of jesus this view of the subject has many difficulties that in many diseases conditions may present themselves which have a deceptive resemblance to death or that in the indifferent state of medical science among the jews of that age especially a swoon might easily be mistaken for death is not to be denied but how was jesus to know that there was such a merely apparent death in this particular case however minutely the father detailed to him the course of the disease nay even if jesus were acquainted beforehand with the particular circumstances of the girl's illness as the natural explanation supposes we must still ask how could he build so much on this information as without having seen the girl and in contradiction to the assurance of the eyewitnesses 
decidedly to declare that she was not dead, according to the rationalistic interpretation of his words. This would have been rashness and folly to boot, unless Jesus had obtained certain knowledge of the true state of the case in a supernatural way, to admit which, however, is to abandon the naturalistic point of view. To return to the explanation of Paulus, between the expressions, he took her by the hand, and the maid arose, expressions which are closely enough connected in Matthew, and are still more inseparably linked by the words eutheos and parakrima in the other two gospels, he inserts a course of medical treatment, and Venturini can even specify the different restoratives which were applied. Against such arbitrary suppositions, Olhausen justly maintains that in the opinion of the evangelical narrator, the life-giving word of Jesus, and, we might add, the touch of his hand furnished with divine power, was the means of restoring the girl to life. In the case of resuscitation narrated by Luke alone, chapter 7, verse 11 and following, the natural explanation has not such a handle as was presented by the declaration of Jesus in the narrative just considered. Nevertheless, the rationalistic commentators take courage and rest their hopes mainly on the circumstance that Jesus speaks to the young man lying in the coffin, verse 14. Now, say they, no one would speak to a dead person, but only to such an one as is ascertained or guessed to be capable of hearing. But this rule would prove that all the dead whom Jesus will raise at the last day are only apparently dead, as otherwise they could not hear his voice, which it is expressly said that they will do. John chapter 5 verse 28 compare with 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verse 16. It would therefore prove too much. Certainly, one who is spoken to must be supposed to hear, and in a certain sense, to be living. But in the present instance, this holds only in so far as the voice of him who quickens the dead can penetrate even to the ears from which life has departed. We must indeed admit the possibility that with the bad custom which prevailed among the Jews of burying their dead a few hours after their decease, a merely apparent corpse might easily be carried to the grave. But all by which it is attempted to show that this possibility was here a reality is a tissue of fictions. In order to explain how Jesus even without any intention to perform a miracle, came to join the funeral procession, and how the conjecture could occur to him that the individual about to be buried was not really dead, it is first imagined that the two processions, that of the funeral and that of the companions of Jesus, met precisely under the gate of the city, and, as they impeded each other, halted for a while directly in opposition to the text, which makes the bearers first stand still when Jesus touches the bier. Affected by the peculiar circumstances of the case, which he had learned during the pause in his progress, Jesus, it is said, approached the mother, and not with any reference to a resurrection, which he intended to effect, but merely as a consolatory address, said to her, weep not. But what an empty, presuming comforter would he be, who, when a mother was about to consign her only son to the grave, should forbid her even the relief of tears, without offering to her either real help by recalling the departed one, or ideal by suggesting grounds for consolation. Now the latter Jesus does not attempt. Hence, Unless we would allow him to appear altogether heartless, he must be supposed to have resolved on the former, and for this he in fact makes every preparation, designedly touching the bier 
and causing the bearers to stand still here before the reanimating word of jesus the natural explanation inserts the circumstance that jesus observed some sign of life in the youth and on this either immediately or after a previous application of medicaments spoke the words which helped completely to awake him but setting aside the fact that those intervening measures are only interpolated into the text and that the strong words young man i say unto thee arise resemble rather the authoritative command of a miracle worker than the attempt of a physician to restore animation how if jesus were conscious that the youth was alive when he met him and was not first recalled to life by himself could he with a good conscience receive the praise which according to the narrative the multitude lavished on him as a great prophet on account of this deed according to paulus he was himself uncertain how he ought to regard the result but if he were not convinced that he ought to ascribe the result to himself it was his duty to disclaim all praise on account of it and if he omitted to do this his conduct places him in an equivocal light in which he by no means appears in the other evangelical histories so far as they are fairly interpreted thus here also we must acknowledge that the evangelist intends to narrate to us a miraculous resuscitation of the dead and that according to him jesus also regarded his deed as a miracle in the third history of a resurrection which is peculiar to john chapter eleven the resuscitated individual is neither just dead nor being carried to his grave but has been already buried several days here one would have thought there was little hope of effecting a natural explanation but the arduousness of the task has only stimulated the ingenuity and industry of the rationalists in developing their conception of this narrative we shall also see that together with the rigorously consequent mode of interpretation of the rationalists which maintaining the historical integrity of the evangelical narrative throughout assumes the responsibility of explaining every part naturally there has appeared another system which distinguishes certain features of the narrative as additions after the event and is thus an advance towards the mythical explanation the rationalistic expositors set out here from the same premises as in the former narrative namely that it is in itself possible for a man who has lain in a tomb four days to come to life again and that this possibility is strengthened in the present instance by the known custom of the jews propositions which we shall not abstractedly controvert from this they proceed to a supposition which we perhaps ought not to let pass so easily namely that from the messenger whom the sisters had sent with the news of their brother's illness jesus had obtained accurate information of the circumstances of the disease and the answer which he gave to the messenger this sickness is not unto death verse four is said to express merely as an inference which he had drawn from the report of the messenger his conviction that the disease was not fatal such a view of his friend's condition would certainly accord the best with his conduct in remaining two days in perea after the reception of the message verse six since according to that supposition he could not regard his presence in bethany as a matter of urgent necessity but how comes it that after the lapse of these two days he not only resolves to journey thither verse eight but also has quite a different opinion of the state of lazarus nay certain knowledge of his death which he first obscurely verse ten and then plainly verse fourteen announces to his disciples here the thread of the natural explanation is lost and the break is only rendered more conspicuous 
by the fiction of a second messenger after the lapse of two days bringing word to jesus that lazarus had expired in the interim for the author of the gospel at least cannot have known of a second messenger otherwise he must have mentioned him since the omission to do so gives another aspect to the whole narrative obliging us to infer that jesus had obtained information of the death of lazarus in a supernatural manner jesus when he had resolved to go to bethany said to the disciples lazarus sleepeth but i go that i may awake him out of sleep verse eleven this the naturalists explain by the supposition that jesus must in some way have gathered from the statements of the messengers who announced the death of lazarus that the latter was only in a state of lethargy but we can as little here as in the former case impute to jesus the foolish presumption of giving before he had even seen the alleged corpse the positive assurance that he yet lived from this point of view it is also a difficulty that jesus says to his disciples verse 15 i am glad for your sakes that i was not there to the intent ye may believe paulus explains these words to imply that jesus feared lest the death had it happened in his presence might have shaken their faith in him but as gobbler has remarked pisteuo cannot mean merely the negative not to lose faith which would rather have been expressed by a phrase such as that your faith fail not see luke chapter twenty two verse thirty two and moreover we nowhere find that the idea which the disciples formed of jesus as the messiah was incompatible with the death of a man or more correctly of a friend in his presence from the arrival of jesus in bethany the evangelical narrative is somewhat more favorable to the natural explanation it is true that martha's address to jesus verse twenty one and following lord if thou hadst been here my brother had not died but i know that even now whatsoever thou wilt ask of god he will give it to thee appears evidently to express the hope that jesus may be able even to recall the dead one to life however on the assurance of jesus which follows thy brother shall rise again she answers despondingly yes at the last day this is certainly a help to the natural explanation for it seems retrospectively to give to the above declaration of martha verse twenty two the general sense that even now although he has not preserved the life of her brother she believes jesus to be him to whom god grants all that he desires that is the favorite of the deity the messiah but the expression which martha uses is not pisteu but oida and the turn of phrase i know that this will happen if thou only willest it to be so is a common but indirect form of petition and is here the more unmistakable because the object of the entreaty is clearly indicated by the foregoing antitheses martha evidently means thou hast not indeed prevented the death of our brother but even now it is not too late for at thy prayer god will restore him to thee and us martha's change of mind from the hope which is but indirectly expressed in her first reply verse twenty four to its extinction in the second cannot be held very surprising in a woman who here and elsewhere manifests a very hasty disposition and it is in the present case sufficiently explained by the form of the foregoing assurance of jesus verse twenty three martha had expected that jesus would reply to her indirect prayer by a decided promise of its fulfillment and when he answers quite generally 
and with an expression which it was usual to apply to the resurrection at the last day she gives a half impatient half desponding reply but that general declaration of jesus as well as the yet more indefinite one verse twenty five and following i am the resurrection and the life is thought favourable to the rationalistic view jesus it is said was yet far from the expectation of an extraordinary result hence he consoles martha merely with the general hope that he the messiah would procure for those who believed in him a future resurrection and a life of blessedness as however jesus had before verse eleven spoken confidently to his disciples of awakening lazarus he must then have altered his opinion in the interim a change for which no cause is apparent further when verse forty jesus is about to awake lazarus he says to martha said i not unto thee that if thou wouldest believe thou shouldest see the glory of god evidently alluding to verse twenty three in which therefore he must have meant to predict the resurrection which he was going to effect that he does not declare this distinctly and that he again veils the scarcely uttered promise in relation to the brother verse twenty five in general promises for the believing is the effect of design the object of which is to try the faith of martha and extend her sphere of thought when mary at length comes out of the house with her companions her weeping moves jesus himself to tears to this circumstance the natural interpretation appeals with unusual confidence asking whether if he were already certain of his friend's resurrection he would not have approached his grave with the most fervent joy since he was conscious of being able to call him again living from the grave in the next moment in this view the words enebri ni sato verse thirty three and menos verse thirty eight are understood of a forcible repression of the sorrow caused by the death of his friend which subsequently found vent in his tears but both by its etymology according to which it signifies fremere in alquiem or in se and by the analogy of its use in the new testament where it appears only in the sense of increperi aliquem matthew chapter nine verse thirty mark chapter one verse forty three chapter fourteen verse five ubrimasthai is determined to imply an emotion of anger not of sorrow where it is united not with the dative of another person but with to penumati and enhauto it must be understood of a silent suppressed displeasure this sense would be very appropriate in verse thirty eight where it occurs the second time for in the foregoing observation of the jews could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind have caused that even this man should not have died there lies an intimation that they were scandalized the prior conduct of jesus perplexing them as to his present demeanour and vice versa but where the word ubrimasthai is first used verse thirty three the general weeping seems to have been likely to excite in jesus a melancholy rather than an angry emotion yet even here a strong disapproval of the want of faith which was manifested was not impossible that jesus then himself broke out into tears only proves that his indignation against the faithless generation around him dissolved into melancholy not that melancholy was his emotion from the beginning lastly that the jews verse thirty six in relation to the tears which jesus shed said among themselves behold how he loved him appears to be rather against than for those who regard the emotion of jesus as sorrow for the death of his friend and sympathy with the sisters
for as the character of the narrative of john in general would rather lead us to expect an opposition between the real import of the demeanour of jesus and the interpretation put upon it by the spectators so in particular the jews in this gospel are always those who either misunderstand or pervert the words and actions of jesus it is true that the mild character of jesus is urged as inconsistent with the harshness which displeasure on his part at the very natural weeping of mary and the rest would imply but such a mode of thinking is by no means foreign to the christ of john's gospel he who gave to the basilicos when preferring the inoffensive request that he would come to his house and heal his son the rebuke except ye see signs and wonders ye will not believe he who when some of his disciples murmured at the hard doctrines of the sixth chapter assailed them with the cutting question doth this offend you and will ye also go away chapter six verses sixty one and sixty seven he who repulsed his own mother when at the wedding at cana she complained to him of the want of wine with the harsh reply what have i to do with thee woman chapter two verse four who thus was always the most displeased when men not comprehending his higher mode of thought or action showed themselves desponding or importunate would here find peculiar reason for this kind of displeasure if this be the true interpretation of the passage and if it be not sorrow for the death of lazarus which jesus here exhibits there is an end to the assistance which the natural explanation of the entire event is thought to derive from this particular feature meanwhile even on the other interpretation a momentary emotion produced by sympathy with the mourners is quite reconcilable with the foreknowledge of the resurrection and how could the words of the jews verse thirty seven serve as rationalistic commentators think to excite in jesus the hope that god would now perhaps perform something extraordinary for him the jews did not express the hope that he could awake the dead but only the conjecture that he might perhaps have been able to preserve his friend's life martha therefore had previously said more when she declared her belief that even now the father would grant him what he asked so that if such hopes were excited in jesus from without they must have been excited earlier and especially before the weeping of jesus to which it is customary to appeal as the proof that they did not yet exist even supernaturalists admit that the expression of martha when jesus commanded that the stone should be taken away from the grave verse thirty nine is no proof at all that decomposition had really commenced nor consequently that a natural resuscitation was impossible since it may have been a mere inference from the length of time since the burial but more weight must be attached to the words with which jesus repelling the objections of martha persists in having the tomb opened verse forty said i not unto thee that if thou wouldest believe thou shouldest see the glory of god how could he say this unless he was decidedly conscious of his power to resuscitate lazarus according to paulus this declaration only implied generally that those who have faith will in some way or other experience a glorious manifestation of the divinity but what glorious manifestation of the divinity was to be seen here on the opening of the grave of one who had been buried four days unless it were his restoration to life and what could be the sense of the words of jesus as opposed to the observation of martha that her brother was already within the grasp of decay but that he was empowered to arrest decay 
but in order to learn with certainty the meaning of the words tin doxan tu theu in our present passage we need only refer to verse four where jesus had said that the sickness of lazarus was not unto death but for the glory of god here the first member of the antithesis not unto death clearly shows that the doxa tu theu signifies the glorification of god by the life of lazarus that is since he is now dead by his resurrection a hope which jesus could not venture to excite in the most critical moment without having a superior assurance that it would be fulfilled after the opening of the grave and before he says to the dead man come forth he thanks the father for having heard his prayer this is adduced in the rationalistic point of view as the most satisfactory proof that he did not first recall lazarus to life by those words but on looking into the grave found him already alive again truly such an argument was not to be expected from theologians who have some insight into the character of john's gospel these ought to have remembered how common it is in this gospel as for example in the expression glorify thy son to represent that which is yet to be effected or which is only just begun as already performed and in the present instance it is especially suited to mark with certainty of obtaining fulfilment that it is spoken of as having already happened and what intervention does it further require to explain both how jesus could perceive in lazarus the evidences of returning life and how the latter could have come to life again between the removal of the stone says paulus and the thanksgiving of jesus lies the critical interval when the surprising result was accomplished then must jesus yet some steps removed from the grave have discerned that lazarus was living by what means and how so quickly and unhesitatingly and why did he and no one else discern it he may have discerned it by the movements of lazarus it is conjectured but how easily might he deceive himself with respect to a dead body lying in a dark cavern how precipitate was he if without having examined more nearly he so quickly and decidedly declared his conviction that lazarus lived or if the movements of the supposed corpse were strong and not to be mistaken how could they escape the notice of the surrounding spectators lastly how could jesus in his prayer to represent the incident about to take place as a sign of his divine mission if he was conscious that he had not effected but only discovered the resuscitation of lazarus as arguments for the natural possibility of a return of life in a man who had been interned four days the rationalistic explanation adduces our ignorance of the particular circumstances of the supposed death the rapidity of interment among the jews afterwards of the coolness of the cave the strong fragrance of the spices and lastly the reanimating draught of warm air which on the rolling away of the stone streamed into the cave but all these circumstances do not produce more than the lowest degree of possibility which coincides with the highest degree of improbability and with this the certainty with which jesus predicts the result must remain irreconcilable these decided predictions are indeed the main hindrance to the natural interpretation of this chapter hence it has been sought to neutralize them still from the rationalistic position by the supposition that they did not proceed from jesus but may have been added ex eventu by the narrator paulus himself found the words ex up niso auton verse eleven quite too decided 
and therefore ventured the conjecture that the narrator, writing with this result in his mind, had omitted a qualifying perhaps, which Jesus had inserted. This expedient has been more extensively adopted by Gobbler. Not only does he partake the opinion of Paulus as to the above expression, but already in verse 4 he is inclined to lay the words, for the glory of God, to the account of the evangelist. Again, verse 15, he conjectures that in the words, I am glad for your sakes that I was not there, to the intent ye may believe. There is a slight exaggeration resulting from John's knowledge of the issue. Lastly, even in relation to the words of Martha, verse 22, Allah kainun oida, etc., he admits the idea of an addition from the pen of the writer. By the adoption of this expedient, the natural interpretation avows its inability by itself to cope with the difficulties in John's narrative. For if, in order to render its application possible, it is necessary to expunge the most significant passages, it is plain that the narrative in its actual state does not admit of a natural explanation. It is true that the passages, the incompatibility of which with the rationalistic mode of explanation, is confessed by their excision, are very sparingly chosen. But from the above observations it is clear that if all the features in this narrative which are really opposed to the natural view of the entire event were ascribed to the evangelist, it would in the end be little short of the whole that must be regarded as his invention. Thus, what we have done with the two first narratives of resuscitations is with the last and most remarkable history of this kind, effected by the various successive attempts at explanation themselves, namely, to reduce the subject to the alternative, that we either receive the event as supernatural, according to the representation of the evangelical narrative, or, if we find it incredible as such, deny that the narrative has an historical character. In order, in this dilemma, to arrive at a decision, with respect to all the three narratives, we must refer to the peculiar character of the kind of miracles which we have now before us. We have hitherto been ascending a ladder of miracles, first, cures of mental disorders, then, all kinds of bodily maladies, in which, however, the organization of the sufferer was not so injured as to cause the cessation of consciousness and life, and now, the revivification of bodies, from which the life had actually departed. This progression in the marvelous is, at the same time, a gradation in inconceivability. We have indeed been able to represent to ourselves how a mental derangement, in which none of the bodily organs were attacked beyond the nervous system, which is immediately connected with mental action, might have been removed, even in a purely psychical manner, by the mere word, look, and influence of Jesus. But the more deeply the malady appeared to have penetrated into the entire corporeal system, the more inconceivable to us was a cure of this kind. Where in insane persons the brain was disturbed to the extent of raging madness, or where in nervous patients the disorder was so confirmed as to manifest itself in periodical epilepsy, there we could scarcely imagine how permanent benefit could be conferred by that mental influence. And this was yet more difficult, where the disease had no immediate connection with the mind, as in leprosy, blindness, lameness, etc. And yet, up to this point, there was always something present, to which the marvellous power of Jesus could apply itself. There was still a consciousness in the objects, on which to make an impression, a nervous life to be stimulated. Not so with the dead. 
the corpse from which life and consciousness have flown has lost that last fulcrum for the power of the miracle worker it perceives him no longer receives no impression from him and the very capability of receiving impressions must be conferred on him anew to confer this that is to give life in the proper sense is a creative act and to think of this as being exercised by a man we must confess to be beyond our power but even within the limits of our three histories of resurrections there is an evident climax wolston has remarked with justice that it seems as if each of these narratives were intended to supply what was wanting in the preceding the daughter of jairus is restored to life on the same bed on which she had just expired the youth of nain when already in his coffin and on his way to interment lastly lazarus after four days abode in the tomb in the first history a word was the only intimation that the maiden had fallen under the powers of the grave in the second the fact is imprinted on the imagination also by the picture of the young man being already carried out of the city towards his grave but in the third lazarus who had been some time enclosed in the grave is depicted in the strongest manner as an inhabitant of the netherworld so that if the reality of the death could be doubted in the first instance this would become more difficult in the second and in the third as good as impossible with this gradation there is a corresponding increase in the difficulty of rendering the three events conceivable if indeed when the fact itself is inconceivable there can exist degrees of inconceivableness between its various modifications if however the resurrection of a dead person in general were possible it must rather be possible in the case of one just departed and yet having some remains of vital warmth than in that of a corpse cold and being carried to the grave and again in this rather than in the case of one who had already lain four days in the grave and in which decay is supposed to have commenced nay with respect to which this supposition if not confirmed is at least not denied but setting aside the miraculous part of the histories in question each succeeding one is both intrinsically more improbable and externally less attested than the foregoing as regards the internal improbability one element of this which indeed lies in all and therefore also in the first is especially conspicuous in the second as a motive by which jesus was induced to raise the young man at nain the narrative mentions compassion from the mother verse thirteen together with this we are to include according to olhausen a reference to the young man himself for he observes man as a conscious being can never be treated as a mere instrument which would be the case here if the joy of the mother were regarded as the sole object of jesus in raising the youth this remark of olhausen demands our thanks not that it removes the difficulty of this and every other resuscitation of the dead but that it exhibits the difficulty in the clearest light for the conclusion that what in itself or according to enlightened ideas is not allowable or fitting cannot be ascribed to jesus by the evangelists is totally inadmissible we should rather presupposing the purity of the character of jesus conclude that when the evangelical narratives ascribe to him what is not allowable they are incorrect now that jesus in his resuscitations of the dead made it a consideration whether the persons to be restored to life might from the spiritual condition in which they died derive advantage from the restoration or the contrary we find no indication 
that, as Olhausen supposes, the corporeal awakening was attended with a spiritual awakening, or that such a result was expected, is nowhere said. These resuscitated individuals, not excepting even Lazarus, recede altogether from our observation after their return to life, and hence Wollstone was led to ask why Jesus rescued from the grave precisely these insignificant persons, and not rather John the Baptist, or some other generally useful man. Is it said, he knew it to be the will of providence that these men, once dead, should remain so? But then, it should seem, he must have thought the same of all who had once died, and to Wollstone's objection, there remains no answer but this, as it was positively known concerning celebrated men, that the breach which their deaths occasioned was never filled up by their restoration to life, legend could not annex the resurrections which she was pleased to narrate to such names, but must choose unknown subjects, in relation to which she was not under the same control. The above difficulty is common to all the three narratives, and is only rendered more prominent in the second by an accidental expression. But the third narrative is full of difficulties entirely peculiar to itself, since the conduct of Jesus throughout, and to a considerable extent, that of the other parties, is not easily to be conceived. When Jesus receives the information of the death of Lazarus, and the request of the sisters implied therein, that he would come to Bethany, he remains still two days in the same place, and does not set out toward Judea till after he is certain of the death. Why so? That it was not because he thought the illness attended with no danger has been already shown. On the contrary, he foresaw the death of Lazarus. That indifference was not the cause of the delay is expressly remarked by the evangelist. Verse 5. What then? Luca conjectures that Jesus was then occupied with a particularly fruitful ministry in Perea, which he was not willing to interrupt for the sake of Lazarus, holding it his duty to postpone his less important call as a worker of miracles and a succoring friend, to his higher call as a teacher. But he might here have very well done the one, and not have left the other undone. He might either have left some disciples to carry forward the work in that country, or, remaining there himself, have still cured Lazarus, whether through the medium of a disciple, or by the power of his will at a distance. Moreover, our narrator is entirely silent as to such a cause for the delay of Jesus. This view of it, therefore, can be listened to only on the supposition that no other motive for the delay is intimated by the evangelist, and even then, as nothing more than a conjecture. Now another motive is clearly indicated, as Olhausen has remarked, in the declaration of Jesus, verse 15, that he is glad he was not present at the death of Lazarus, because, for the object of strengthening the faith of the disciples, the resurrection of his friend would be more effectual than his cure. Thus, Jesus had designedly allowed Lazarus to die, that by his miraculous restoration to life, he might procure so much the more faith in himself. Tholuck and Olhausen, on the whole, put the same construction on this declaration of Jesus. But they confine themselves too completely to the moral point of view, when they speak of Jesus as designing, in his character of teacher, to perfect the spiritual condition of the family at Bethany and of his disciples, since, according to expressions such as Hina doxasthi ho huios tu theu, verse 4, his design was rather the messianic one of spreading and confirming faith in himself as the Son of God, though principally 
it is true, within that narrow circle. Here, Luca exclaims, by no means, never did the saviour of the needy, the noblest friend of man, act thus arbitrarily and capriciously. And De Vetta also observes that Jesus in no other instance designedly brings about or increases his miracles. The former, as we have seen, concludes that something external, preoccupation elsewhere, detained Jesus, a supposition which is contrary to the text, and which even De Vetta finds inadequate, though he points out no other expedient. If, then, these critics are correct in maintaining that the real Jesus cannot have acted thus, while, on the other hand, they are incorrect in denying that the author of the fourth gospel makes his Jesus act thus, nothing remains but with the author of the Probabilia, from this incongruity of the Christ in John's gospel, with the Christ alone conceivable as the real one, to conclude that the narrative of the fourth evangelist is unhistorical. End of section 100A